gathered here on the Lord's Day together with all of you. A very special and warm welcome to our visitors and our old friends, and we're thankful that you're here with us. And I invite you as we continue in the worship of God, if you would open your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 7. We want to continue in our worship considering John 7 verses 1 through 13. John chapter 7, we're going to consider this morning verses 1 through 13. Let us begin by hearing the Word of God. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning Concerning him, some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Amen. Let's unite our hearts. Let's pray together and seek God's help. Let's pray. Father, as we've just sung, We come now in prayer asking that You would speak. We pray that You would open Your Word to us. That we would behold the glories of Your Son. That You would give us greater measures of Your Spirit. That we would be instructed by the words of eternal life. Father, these words that we have just read are the inspired Word of God that You've given to Your church for our profit for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And Father, we pray that it would, by Your blessing, have that effect in every heart here this morning. Father, we are not unaware that all of us come this morning from different places in our lives. Some coming off of what, is, what has been a week of rejoicing, thanksgiving, Others come from a week that has been difficult, painful, humbling. Some of us come this morning having encouraged hearts, hearts that are full of faith. 
Others of us come weary, beaten, as it were, by the world, by temptation. And Father, we pray that through Your Word You administer to each and every one of Your saints. Your Spirit knows our needs better than we do. We pray that He would blow upon our hearts, that He would grant us eyes to see, that He would grant us to see the glories of Christ, that we would be taken out of, the, out of being concerned with the temporal passing things of this life, and that we would set our hearts and our hope yet again upon the unchanging truth of the Gospel and the Word of Christ. Father, bless Your people, we pray. We ask for any and all who are here this morning who don't know Christ. Father, break into their darkened hearts, we pray, by Your grace. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. That they would see the glories of Christ, the Son of God, and that they would come to Him by faith. Father, bless us in this time in Your Word, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up again this morning in John chapter 7, having spent a decent amount of time in John chapter 6. And chapter 7 marks a transition in John's Gospel. Chapter 6 concluded the Galilean portion of Jesus' ministry. Uh, For the rest of this Gospel, in John's Gospel, we will not see Christ return again back to His home country in the north where He has already by and large been rejected, but rather the rest of this Gospel will now focus on His ministry in Judea with Jerusalem in particular being at the forefront. And you'll remember from all the way through chapter 6 and especially culminating at the end of chapter 6, the Galilean ministry did not end on a note of triumph but rather on a note of unbelief and the crowds turning back and walking with the Lord Jesus no more. And in this transition passage here in the beginning of John 7, this continues that same theme of unbelief even amongst Jesus' own brothers. And so let's begin this morning with our exposition of these uh, 13 verses and then we will turn to our doctrine and our application. So exposition, if you have a Bible now, especially would be the time to have it open so that you can follow along as we seek to understand what God is teaching and communicating to us here. Verse 1 says, after these things, that is the Galilean ministry, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now, Christian, notice even though many, most of these Galileans have turned their back on Christ and walked with Him no more, Jesus continues for a season in their region continuing to walk amongst them. It shows the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of Christ. Even though God does eventually, usually remove the light of His grace from those who spurn it, He often lets that light remain for a season, even amongst those who reject the light. And based on the time markers that were given, given that it was the Passover at the beginning of chapter 6, and now it's the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7, He remained in Galilee for about a period of six months. 
where He walked amongst them, continuing to do them good and ministering in their need. John tells us here he didn't want to walk in Judea. If you remember, Galilee's the north, Judea's the south, Samaria's in between. John tells us he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews, that is particularly the leaders of the Jews, sought to kill him. You remember John chapter 5, the last time he was in Judea, the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus on the charges of blasphemy for claiming equality with God. And Jesus is well aware, he knows what's in man, he knows their desires, he knows their intentions. And he models for us here something very instructive. He models for us here that it's not cowardly, nor is it compromise, to flee danger from our enemies provided we don't have to sin in order to do so. He knew what their intentions were in Judea, and so he purposefully chose to remain in Galilee. Obviously, those in Galilee were not exactly giving him a warm welcome, but the hostility was not nearly to the uh, level that it was in Judea. His hour had not yet come, and so he preserved himself until that hour that he might continue in the Lord's work. And we as his church should learn from the wisdom of Christ and his example here. Verse 2, just John gives us the context here. He tells us now that the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And you can, in your own time this afternoon, uh, read in Deuteronomy about the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll just summarize it with a couple of brief, brief comments. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of three feasts that the Lord commanded specifically all the males of Israel to attend once a year. And as the name suggests, it was a feast appointed by God for Israel to come into the presence of God and celebrate and rejoice before the Lord. And they would actually dwell in tents or tabernacles for seven days, remembering and celebrating the fact that God dwelt with His people as they wandered in the wilderness. And so it's a big feast It's commanded that the males, Jewish males, attend. Jerusalem, this is an important detail here so that we understand his brother's comments. Jerusalem would swell with inhabitants in the approaching days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so verse 3, John tells us his brothers, and by the way, some, some commentators have uh, differences of opinion. What exactly is meant by brothers here? Is it his literal, you know, the sons of Mary and Joseph? Is it just other close relations? Uh, I personally believe that this is a reference to G, uh, his half brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph. It says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, notice the connection between verses 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 tells us the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And then verse 3 says, and therefore his brothers said this to him. 
And what that tells us is that what his brothers are doing here in their advice to Jesus is they are thinking in worldly terms of fame and the praise of man. And Jesus will rebuke them for it. They are essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, depart from here. That is, depart from you know, the backwoods, you know, low-populated place of, places of Galilee, which, by the way, Jesus, in case you haven't noticed, hasn't been all that successful in convincing people that you're the Messiah. Leave this place and go into Judea during the feast so that your works may be made known there. Right? Go to where the people are, where the leaders are, the heart of Israel, the heart of Israel's religion, and in front of everyone, we will go with you to the feast. And at the beginning, you can work one of these wondrous signs that we've heard you're able to do, and you can present yourself to the scrutiny of the religious leaders, and we can really get this thing off the ground. Notice verse 4. They assume his motives. They say, For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be made known openly. Notice they're assuming that Jesus has the same worldly ambitions as they do and that the world does. And they're basically taking it for granted. Jesus, don't you want to be accepted? Don't you want to be famous for your abilities and your power? All it takes is a cursory glance at John chapter 6 to know that Jesus is motivated by entirely different things than these brothers are here. Jesus was not disappointed and surprised that the crowds walked away from Him. He he wasn't uh, racking His brain, as it were, on how can I improve my marketing skills. And notice those words, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. There's indication in that, the way that they've phrased that, there's indication that there's a challenge here from his brothers. There, there's a, uh, a jab, if you will. If these things you claim to do are really genuine, then Jesus, prove yourself to the world. Expose your works to the scrutiny of the, the Sanhedrin, and if it be so that you're Messiah, everyone will know it. And no doubt, you've got to to put yourself into the the shoes of these um, still-worldly brothers. They're not just saying this for no reason. This is somewhat similar to the apostles when they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. These brothers, not converted yet, still unbelieving, they are no doubt thinking that if, and at this point it is a big if in their mind, if Jesus is genuine if he's able to prove himself with these kinds of miracles we've heard about, they're thinking, well, we as his brothers, if we accompany him to the feast, no doubt we will get to share in some of that earthly glory. But there's this subtle taunt here and challenge. They're challenging him to prove himself. It's very indicative of where they're at. That they are not bowing down to Him as Lord. They're not submitted to His Word as teacher, but rather, they're placing themselves in the place of teaching Christ how He ought to do His work and go about His ministry. 
Verse 5, John tells us, for the reader's sake, what was made uh, implicit. He makes it explicit. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They are motivated still by a worldly carnal ambition. They see Christ very similarly to the crowds as a means of a means to an end, not as an end in himself. And so verses six through eight says, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds or works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. When He says here in verse 6, He says it twice. When He says in verse 6, my time has not yet come, And then again in verse uh, 8, he says, my time has not yet fully come. He's referring to his hour to be glorified. They want him to glorify himself, show himself to the world in a certain manner according to the wisdom of this world. Right? They're thinking earthly glory, uh, earthly praise, the praise of man. But that is not how the Son of Man came to be glorified. Christ came on an entirely different mission than that which would be expected by the still carnal heart. Christ came to do His Father's will. That that is His glory. And His Father had appointed an hour and had appointed a particular way in which the Son would be glorified. And it's not at all according to the wisdom of this present age. In John chapter 12, verse 27, it's another transition in John's Gospel where suddenly uh, Greeks come and they seek to see Jesus. And that, that's a sign to Christ that the, cro- the hour of the cross is impending upon Him. And it's coming soon. Jesus says in John 12, 27, He says, Now is my soul troubled, but what should I, shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And again in chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, He says, again, in light of the cross, He says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Christ's great moment of glorification was to be His greatest moment of humiliation. Very different from what the average Jew of this day expected of Messiah. That is what the Father sent the Son to do. Not to be received by the world on the world's terms. Indeed, to do the very opposite. And we should praise God that Jesus refused this kind of false glory for the greater glory of completing His Father's will for us. 
knowing this, that he and his brothers are operating with entirely different ideas about what it will mean for him to be glorified, he says to them, my time is not yet come. But he says to them, your time to be glorified by the world is always here because you are of this world. You're worldly. But he says, I am not of this world, and indeed this world hates me because I testify about it that this world's deeds are evil. And in fact, it is the very fact that the world hates Christ because He exposes the world that will lead to His very hour of being glorified. Christ came not to be glorified by the the pomp and show like earthly kings, but to be glorified in offering Himself in a death for a world that doesn't deserve redemption. He says in verse 8, He says, you, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. Now notice, He doesn't say or imply here that He's not going to go up to the feast at all. Sometimes people read this passage and they're confused because it seems like he didn't want to go or that he was adamant he wasn't going to go and then all of a sudden, you know, he comes. But he doesn't, he's, what the point we're supposed to get here is that he's telling these brothers, I'm not going to go to the feast with you and in the way or manner in which you want me to go to this feast. And so verse 9, when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And so, up until this point, Jesus has lawfully and rightfully sought safety from his enemies, remaining in Galilee. He knows there's danger in Judea. But even though he wouldn't agree to the way the brothers wanted him to go to Judea, He would not disobey His Father in terms of the command to to attend this feast even though it meant danger for Him. And so letting His brothers go ahead of Him, He then comes after and attends the feast privately. And in this day, usually families would travel in caravans. It would be very well known that this family is now here And Jesus wanted to avoid that kind of publicity, and so He comes behind, flying under the radar in a sense, and attends the feast in secret. Verse 11. John gives us commentary on what's going on with the crowds and the leaders here. Then the Jews sought Him at the feast and said, where is He? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. So his reputation has preceded him. He's obviously made it his custom to attend the previous feasts. And he has, when he has attended those feasts, he certainly uh, has made himself known at those times. And so there's an anticipation. Where is he? I believe those are the words of the, the leaders. John often refers to the leaders as simply the Jews. And they're differentiated from the common people. And those are the words, I think, of the leaders searching for Him. Just like Jesus knew there was danger. They sought to kill Him. And they speak of Him to persecute Him. 
Where is that one? It's amazing. You think about the, the irony, the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast to celebrate how God dwelt with His people in the wilderness. And here the leaders are seeking to snuff out God who has come in the flesh to dwell among His people. But also, there's a divergence of opinion among the common people. And by the way, when it says there was much complaining or murmuring among the people, doesn't necessarily mean that all the people were murmuring against Jesus, but rather may imply, and I'm inclined to think it implies, they were complaining not so much against Christ, but rather complaining about the rulers and their response to Christ. In other words, some, as we'll see here, are probably complaining that why don't the leaders recognize this as a good man and come to his defense, and others are on the other side complaining, why don't the leaders put a stop to this divisive and deceitful man? Notice the opinions. Some were saying, he is good. He's a good man. Which is better than outright opposing him, but still doesn't go far enough saying simply that he's a good man. He's not just that. He's the Son of God. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. And they've got no grounds to say that. No one so far has disproved his miracles. No one has contradicted his doctrine. And yet, they are clinging to this assumption that no matter what it looks like underneath somewhere, it's got to be that he is, this man is actually a cheat. He's a deceiver. Leading the people astray. So you've got these polarized opinions. And then verse 13 summarizes where all of them are at. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. These are people who are gripped by fear. They have their private opinions, whether good or bad, whether right or wrong, and they, but they are too afraid to speak anything about him, whether it be a good word or a bad word, for fear of retaliation from their leaders. And that's a theme that we will see picked up again and again in the ensuing chapters in John's Gospel. So, that, that concludes our exposition. What is going on here? What God is teaching us here? Let, let's move on now into our second portion, our second section this morning. And let's turn to our doctrine and application. Our doctrine and application. And I've combined these again this morning for the sake of time. And there's two things that I want to press home for us. There are some more that if I had time we could have opened up. But two primary things that I want to press home in terms of, first of all, doctrine. How we are instructed doctrinally by this passage of how we should think about people how we should think about unbelieving hearts and things like that. But then also application. How we, should, how we should respond to those doctrines. Two things. I'll give, you to the, give them to you as we go. The first doctrine and application, Christian, is this. The gift of saving grace does not run in bloodlines. Okay? for lack of a better way to put that, the gift, God's gift of saving grace, making someone a Christian and believing in Christ, 
does not run in bloodlines. You remember chapter 1, verse 12, where John, the, um, the prelude to his gospel, says, to as many as believed in him, he, be, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born of blood, of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but born of God. And blood is put right there at the front of that list of ways the grace of God is not communicated to sinners. And here in verse 5, we have an example of that. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Christian, you think about it. Who in this world was closer and more acquainted with the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ than those who were literally brought up in the same household as Him. They had a unique front row seat to how undefiled and harmless Christ was. They saw His conduct. They got to witness the only perfectly obedient child to His parents. They heard from Joseph and Mary about the uniqueness of their eldest brother, and still, with all of those privileges and all of those evidences that should have furnished their hearts and minds with faith, at this point in time, they were still unbelieving. His brothers did not believe in him. Demonstrating, once again, chapter 6 is carrying into chapter 7, demonstrating once again the truth that unless it has been granted by the Father, no man or woman or child will come savingly to Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus chapter 3, that which is flesh is flesh. He said to the crowds in chapter 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. That's true of the crowds. That's true of even the twelve we saw. And that is true even of His own brothers. They needed the same heart change that Nicodemus needed. And the crowds needed. And every single one of us in this room needed. Uh, need, and needed. And it's a heart change that does not come about by the arm of the flesh, but rather by the sovereign will of God. And Christian, that should check our presumption the same way it should have checked the Jews' presumption. Right? John the Baptist had to warn the Jews, I can raise up children of, from, um, of Abraham from these stones. Because they were so confident. We've got the blood of Abraham running in our veins. We are the people of God. We are the children of God. And just like that presumption was checked. Christian, we need to have our presumption checked. Union with Christ, true union with Christ is what saves. Someone can be as close as possible to Christ and the things of Christ, but not yet have union with Christ. And it does not matter how close in proximity they are to those things. 
if they do not actually close with Christ by the grace of God, they are not going to believe in Christ. There is nothing about close proximity to the things of the Gospel and the light of, the, of God's Word that is, makes an automatic, that automatically shields us from our naturally darkened hearts. Right? I, and I, in a sense, wish it did. I think every parent, in a sense, wishes that that were the case. That there, there was just some circumstance that we could con, uh, concoct that if I can pump enough you know, X, Y, and Z into my children, for instance, out will pop the guarantee that they will love Christ and believe in Christ. But it doesn't work that way. Because the reality is, original sin got to them a long time before we did. And original sin's internal influence is far more pervasive and far stronger than our external influence. That's true of everyone. Listen to me. I'm speaking here to both adults and and to kids. If you know Christ today, and you know Him truly and sincerely, you love Him, you are trusting that His death for my sins and His glorious resurrection is my only hope to be brought near to God and to enter eternal life. That didn't happen. We need to understand... That didn't happen primarily because you were born to Christian parents. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of us in this room owe an eternity of debt and gratitude to Christian parents or to friends who were faithful in bringing you to church and trying to bring you as close as they could to the things of Christ so that you might be saved. Don't get me wrong. But those privileges are privileges that God uses. They are not guarantees in and of themselves. And if they were, we wouldn't have to know the heartache of seeing the same privileges received by one but spurned by another. If you're here this morning and you love Christ in the sincerity of your heart and you're trusting Him, that's the case because God gave that to you as a gift. That He didn't just knock on your heart externally and say, here's the feast for your soul that you can have it in My Son. But God in His grace and His good timing actually reached into your heart and said, let light shine out of darkness. And there was light. What this means, Christian, here's our application of this. What this means for us, Christian, and there are many things we could open up, I'm just going to emphasize one this morning, is that we cannot rely on the arm of the flesh to save. It is not blood, it is not the will of the flesh or the will of man that saves a person. Trusting in those things is presumptuous 
Because a sinner becoming a Christian is always something beyond what we have the ability to accomplish. And rather, it is a work that God must do. And therefore, here's the application, very simple application. Therefore, Christian, we must earnestly pray to the God of heaven and intercede in behalf of the hearts of unbelievers. We must earnestly pray to the God of heaven who does have the power to open the heart that, Lord, would you do what only you can do. Christian, never ever underestimate the amount of good you are doing when you pray for sinners. When you pray and intercede for the unbelieving world, you are doing the best work and the most foundational work you can do for them. All right, John Bunyan, um, John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but until you have prayed, you cannot do more than pray. Hopefully you understand that. Sometimes it takes two times to hear that. He's saying, you can, after you've prayed, sure, there's other things you can do. Go speak to them. Go witness to them. But he's saying, but until you've prayed, no matter what else you want to try to do, you cannot do more than pray for them. Because that's the greatest work. And parents, in particular, this applies to all of us, but particularly with this passage, parents are on my mind I'm asking myself this question just as much as I'm asking you. How earnestly and consistently and devotedly do we get before the throne of God in behalf of our children? Or, even if it's not for your kids, how, how faithfully and devotedly are we getting before the throne of God to intercede in behalf of our unbelieving family? our unbelieving friends and neighbors. I know as a parent, and the moms probably relate to this even more than dads, I know how easy it is to become, first of all, tired and discouraged in parenting, but second of all, how easy it is to just get caught up in the never-ending cycle of discipline and correction and instruction that before you even know it, you realize I haven't even prayed for them. I've been more focused on what I think I can do with all these external methods and what I think I can accomplish that I haven't even been focused on what infinite omnipotence can do for their hearts. Before our children are born, we should pray for them in all of our instruction, we should pray for them. We, we can, we have limited tools. We can coerce by threat of discipline and other things for a time the outward behaviors of our kids. We can talk to them about heart issues, but we cannot change their heart. Only God only God and His Word and that sovereign Word of His Spirit opening the heart can actually create the very thing He commands. And so, Christian, pray. Intercede. 
You think about it. Praying is one of the only things that no one else can take away from you. Sinners can and will try to get you to stop talking to them. They will try to shut you out of their life. They will try to hide in darkness. They'll avoid you. But they cannot stop you from praying for them. And they cannot stop God from hearing those prayers. And they cannot stop God when it pleases Him from getting a hold of their hearts for the, uh, when and if it pleases God for His glory. So that's the first thing. Grace does not flow in bloodlines. It comes to us by the sovereign act and work of God through His Word, by the Spirit, and therefore, Christian, we need to pray and intercede. Secondly, second point of doctrine and application. This one's lengthy. I apologize. Don't know how to get some of these down to pithy little short things, so I'll repeat it. Second point of doctrine and application this morning. The devil and the unbelieving world and I'm taking this from the example of Christ's brothers here. The devil and the unbelieving world will tempt the Christian to embrace subtle counterfeits of worldly glory rather than the path to glory that God has ordained. Okay? I'll say that again. The devil and the unbelieving world will tempt the Christian to embrace subtle counterfeits of worldly glory rather than the path to glory that God has ordained. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Here you've got Jesus' brothers saying to Jesus, depart from, Judea, uh, depart from Galilee, go into Judea, that's where the people are, that's where the leaders are, and if you do what you claim that you can do there before all these leaders, then you can show yourself to the world and everyone will believe you. And in one sense, we might read those words and not really see all that much wrong with them. I mean, the brother's advice here even has what seems to be a plausible appeal to what Jesus has already been doing. After all, he's already performed signs in somewhat public settings. He's done it in Cana, chapter 2. He's done it in the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Um... And the brothers are thinking like marketers. Right? We, Jesus, we know exactly the gig that you need to make this go platinum is essentially what they're saying. And Jesus rebukes them saying, you are worldly. You misunderstand the nature of my kingdom and you misunderstand my mission. This temptation given Jesus from the brothers, from his brothers, is strikingly similar to how the devil tempted the Lord Jesus in his uh, wilderness temptations. Right? Here, the brothers, you have them taking something that's not all bad. Don't you want to be made known to the world? But they're telling him to get it in a sinful way. What did the devil do when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness? The same exact thing. Coming to him and saying, Jesus, what's wrong with eating bread if you're hungry? What's wrong with trusting God if you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? 
Or his final temptation, Jesus, as he showed him all the glories of all the kingdoms of the world, what's wrong with inheriting all these for yourself? After all, isn't that exactly what your father promised you? And so what does it matter how you get it? That's what's going on here with the brothers and Jesus. Jesus would show himself to the world. But it would be in his appointed time and in the Father's appointed way. Christ had a particular path laid out before him that would lead to his glorification. And it was not the path of simply wooing Jerusalem with signs and wonders. It was the path of the cross and the resurrection. Christ did not come to be accepted by the world on the world's terms. He came to be despised by the world and rejected by the world so that He might save the world. Something we as Christians need to understand. I'll open this up in a moment here. Christ's appointed path to glory and the Christian's path in following Christ is not a type of glory that the worldling is going to appreciate. Rather, like these brothers, it's one that the world will think is foolish. But it's a glory that is cherished by the saint. Right? Paul says that Christ has become to us now the wisdom and the power of God. That will be Christ's fame. That will be His glory. To have a kingdom that's purchased by humility and sacrifice, not carnal pomp and show. And this is yet another attempt of the devil to offer Jesus some cheap counterfeit to obtain His glory another way other than the way appointed by the Father. And Christian, here's where we touch down with application. Christian, the devil does the same exact thing to Christ's people. Telling Christians there is a way to obtain glory apart from the path of Golgotha. Right? Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before Him, Christ endured the cross, and likewise, He's our the author and finisher of our faith, we who now follow Him, Christian, for the joy of eternal life that is set before you, you must endure the cross. And the devil in the world will say it isn't so. Jesus warned us about that very thing. Uh, chapter 13 of John's Gospel, I've already alluded to this, in the context of His own impending death, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And Christian, you know as well as I do that there are so many subtle ways the devil and the world, and this world is walking according to the prince of the power of the air. It lies in the hands of the evil one. The devil and this world, there are so many ways they use to seek to pull us off the course. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, I think I mentioned it last week, 
If you haven't read it, I'll just exhort you now, read it. Uh, read it to your kids. Pilgrim's Progress is essentially a story about so many divergent paths off the narrow path and so many different villages and different characters Christian runs into, all of which, at least all the bad ones, are essentially saying to Christian, hey, come with us on this path. We found an easier and more agreeable path that leads to the celestial city, and you can still get there, and you don't have to follow this narrow way. And what does Christian find? Every single one of them is a fraud. And he winds up eventually, by the grace of God, back on the narrow path, no thanks to them, a bit more bruised and beaten than he would have been if he had stayed there. But Christian, listen to me. The world is going to do this to us. The world, we need to grow comfortable with the world's frown. We do not live to court the smiles of the world or to seek their approval or their advice. The advice Jesus' brothers are giving Him here is terrible advice. It's worldly advice. It's the hissing of the serpent. Jesus, here's another way to get glory. Christian, we by definition disappoint the world because we are not of the world. And in fact, we make the world angry because like Christ, we testify about the world that its deeds are evil. And therefore, what's the world's disposition towards us? It's not just to let those Christians be. Rather, their disposition to us is that they are constantly trying to get us to embrace their perspective in order to form us into their mold. Because they don't like the light shining on them. Because it brings conviction. And so what does the world do? In a million ways, the world tries to make the Christian feel weird, outcast, unintelligent, foolish, you name it. So that the Christian will be tempted to cower before the pressure of the world so that his light is not as bright and his saltiness is not so salty. For instance, just give you examples. The world will tell you this. Certainly, as you tell them about what your life looks like and about the pains and the sufferings that have come to you since becoming a Christian, and you tell them about the relationship struggles and all those things that you've lost, the world will comfort you. Well, certainly God doesn't want His people to be miserable in this life. Certainly there's a way where you can both serve God and at the same time enjoy the popularity and the acceptance of the world. Right? It's amazing how they suddenly become our spiritual counselors. Just like Jesus' brothers are being His spiritual counselors. They've never opened a Bible, but all of a sudden they know exactly what God would require of us. Christian, why is that? It's because this is what they want God to require of us. 
because they don't like the God who is. And they want you to be just like them, lukewarm at best, so that they don't, they don't look bad. Or they'll say things after, they t- after you tell them what you believe. They'll say things like, personally, you know, let me tell you this as a friend. Personally, if you want to believe in a judgment to come and the universal sinfulness of man and hell, personally, if you want to believe those things, that's okay to hold those things privately. But when you're talking to other people, just, just be an encourager. Just preach love. Preach you need to be a, a good person. We all know how much easier our lives would be if our only message to the world was be a good person. That, that, that's what the world wants to hear. And then everyone just gets to go away and define good person however they want. And as long as I'm that, I think it's a good person and it makes me feel good. Christian, the world will purposefully, just like these brothers are doing to Jesus, they will make you feel weird outcast, foolish. Not only for what you believe, but what you do. The way you live your life. The things that you participate in and the things you don't participate in. Right? Early Christ, uh, young Christians especially experience that second one very early on. When suddenly you're not running with your old crowd the same way you did. And what are you? You're now the killjoy. You're, you know, Mr. Holier Than Thou. They'll chide you for the opportunities of worldly glory that you turn down. Why? I mean, like these, why don't you do it this way? The world would love you. And they'll chide you for the suffering and the self denial that you willingly embrace. Christian, that, that, that just is how it is. It is how it is. It's the lot of Christians. And I, it was the lot of Christ. And I would be deceiving you if I told you that you should lose sleep over that or if I told you that if you're wise enough, you can strike a balance. You can't. We live in different kingdoms where there is very little, except for common grace, overlap. Different allegiances govern the Christian and the world. Different commitments. Different morals. And just as Jesus had to constantly resist the other kingdom from forcing its ideology onto Him, we must, as His people, constantly resist the world's deceptive temptations. Resist compromise. Resist believing the lie that there's an easier way than the one God has told me in His Word that I can still get to heaven. And Christian, you know what the... I'll close, close this point off with this. You know what the bomb is that soothes the Christian's lonely soul? Right? And when I say loneliness, I mean, I'm just like you. The world. I'm not talking about the church. We're not lonely in the sense of the church. But the world is a lonely place for the Christian. Christ here felt the loneliness of being the weird outcast, so to speak, even amongst his own brothers. And like Christ, we are uh, strangers and outcasts in the world. 
We, we have no lasting city here. These people are not our people. And we feel often like Lot, righteous Lot, just vexed in our heart with, I'm an outcast. <laughs> I, I don't really line up with anyone except for the people of God. But you know what the, the bomb, the ointment to that is? John 13, I've already alluded to this, after Jesus speaks of His own death and He says that He must, like a grain of wheat, fall into the ground, and unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain alone. He then says to His disciples, if anyone follows Me, or if anyone serves Me, let him follow Me, and where I am, there My servant will be also. That's His call to to join. But then he gives also the encouragement. He says, if anyone serves me, my or him my father will honor. If anyone comes after me and loses this world, it is him that my father will honor. Jesus knows that to follow him is to give up the honor and praise of this world. He knows it's loss. He is our supreme example. He was crucified to the world and the world to Him. But in being crucified to the world, us, and joining ourselves to Christ and joining in His sufferings, we gain the only honor and praise that actually matter. The honor and the praise of the only blessed God. And it's the the balm and ointment to our souls to constantly have the refrain in our minds and our hearts to to pray, Father, the hour, the time of my glory has not yet come. The hour of glory for this world is always here because they live for this world, but I live for the world that is to come. And I live to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Christians, stay faithful to the path that leads to glory that God has appointed. Don't try to make it into heaven straddling the fence of the narrow way. That I can have one foot in the narrow path, one foot out here, and hopefully that all leads to the same place. But instead, go all in with Christ. Does it cost everything? Yes. Yes. But is it worth everything? 